Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 21, 2022. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. The headline story is written by Matthew Rezab from the Globe Gazette. It is entitled, County Signs Off on Secondary Roads Building Contract. The Cerro Gordo County Board of Trust Supervisors on Tuesday unanimously approved an agreement with Kingland Construction to build a $2.87 million secondary roads maintenance facility in Mason City. The new building to be located just north of the current maintenance shed across from Asbury on North Illinois Avenue will feature 12 equipment bays and be approximately 120 by 180 feet. County engineer Brandon Billings said the new facility is necessary because the old building is around 70 years old and has major structural issues. We think that the weight of the roof on the walls is what's keeping the top row of bricks together, Billings said. Water was leaking down the wall and hitting a power box. The guys were standing there with a broomstick, hitting the power box to turn the power back on. Billings and Supervisor Chris Watts said extra room for newer equipment is also needed. The bay doors are pretty small compared to the size of equipment they need to house, (coughs) Watts said in August. When the maintenance sheds were built over 70 years ago, road equipment used to be a lot smaller. He said plows and grader blades needed to be angled just right to get through the doors, and even then, scrapes and dents on the door frames are evident. Once inside, the equipment has to be butted up against the back wall to get the doors shut. Kingland Construction also won bids to construct identical maintenance sheds in Ventura and Thornton earlier this year for a total of $1.65 million. The Ventura shed has been completed, and is up and running with four full-time workers based there. The Thornton shed is nearly complete, but the overhead doors still need to be delivered and installed. The reason for the delay of the Mason City shed is that soil boring on the construction site last year determined it was unsuitable to put a building on top. The board elected to perform a soil correction on the advice of Billings and to let it rest for a year to give it time to settle. The projects are being paid for through a combination of renting out county property for farmland and a portion of the more than $8 million the county received as part of the American Rescue Plan. Each secondary road building in the county is being considered for replacement. The board paid $10,000 to have all the secondary roads buildings assessed because I came back to them and said, these things are garbage, and it's going to be millions to fix them, Billings said. Also on the front page is an article entitled, Mason City School Board Has First Reading of Stock Medication Policy. The article is by Abby Koch. Mason City Community School District is working to join districts across the nation to keep a life-saving drug in all its buildings. Naloxone, sold under the brand name Narcan, an opioid antagonist, can reverse the effects of an opioid overdose in minutes. 
the Mason City School Board was presented with the policy Monday night. At this point, we wrote the policy to have it in all our buildings, said Heidi Venom, Director of Special Education and Student Services. Once we have the policy approved, we will go through the Iowa Department of Public Health and apply, and they write the prescription for us. The policy is to obtain epinephrine, auto-injectors, bronchodilators, and opioid antagonists from licensed healthcare professionals and store the medications at each building. A school nurse and trained staff members will be able to administer the medicine during situations in which there is reason to believe a student or individual is having an opioid overdose. According to reporting from the Globe Gazette's Des Moines Bureau, Iowa's rate of drug overdoses remains among the lowest in the U.S., but the numbers are increasing, reflecting a national trend related to fentanyl. Fentanyl, a synthetic opioid between 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine, has been implicated in an increasing number of opioid-related overdoses in Iowa in the past year. According to the governor's office, 83% of overdoses from opioids in 2021 involved fentanyl. Iowa school districts are allowed to acquire the medication after the signing of Iowa House File 2573 in June. We have worked with Prairie Ridge Integrated Behavioral Health on providing training for all of our staff so that they are able to dispense the medicine, said Venom. Venom informed the school board staff is not being asked to administer the medication since it is more likely the school nurse would be the one to administer. According to the policy, if a medication is administered, emergency medical services are contacted and the school nurse or personnel will stay with the individual until EMS arrives. The Iowa Department of Education is contacted within 48 hours. Clear Lake, Central Springs, and Charles City have adopted similar policies to stock epinephrine auto-injectors, bronchodilators, and opioid antagonists. On page two, an article entitled Mason City Man Sentenced to Five Years for Burglary. The article is by Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette. A Mason City man was sentenced to five years in prison Monday for felony burglary. According to court records, 27-year-old Jesse Keenan Raphael was sentenced in Cerro Gordo District Court for third-degree burglary. Raphael was originally charged with two separate burglaries for incidents in May of this year that resulted in an injury and another in November 2017. Raphael pleaded guilty November 7 in exchange for a first-degree burglary charge being dropped. Ultimately, he was tripped up by DNA evidence. According to court documents, police took a report in May of a male who had been attacked and injured by Raphael. A sample of a blood at the scene was collected for analysis. Officers interviewed Raphael, who denied involvement, and ultimately collected a cheek swab. Raphael's DNA came back as a match to the blood at the assault scene, <clears throat> as well as to the scene of a break-in and theft which occurred at a Mason City residence in 2017. 
In business news on the second page is an article entitled Clear Lake Chamber Receives Grant. The Clear Lake Area Chamber of Commerce recently received a $10,000 grant from the Iowa Tourism Office. The grant will be used to fund a digital marketing campaign to promote the Day the Music Died tour sites, according to a press release. Clear Lake and the Surf Ballroom and the Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and Big Bopper Memorial Crash Site were heavily featured in the new Paramount documentary, The Day the Music Died, the story of Don McLean's American Pie. Upon the release of the film, we created a landing page for those interested in learning more and touring the sites mentioned in the film. We will extend our reach by running a targeted digital marketing campaign to give more people the opportunity to learn about Clear Lake, said Tourism Director Libby Hone in a statement. We're pleased to invest in campaigns that work to change the perception of tourism in Iowa and encourage more people to visit our state, said Amy Ziegler, <coughs> manager of the Iowa Tourism Office, in the release. These projects will help us continue the momentum and growth of our industry. Visitors spent more than $6.1 billion across Iowa's economy in 2021, an expansion of 35% over 2020 spending and within 5% of a full recovery of pre-pandemic levels. This direct visitor spending impact generated a total economic impact of $9.4 billion in Iowa, sustained nearly 65,000 jobs, and generated $1 billion in state and local tax revenues in 2021. Our goal with this campaign is to bring new visitors to North Iowa and also inspire travelers to go off their original path and insert Clear Lake into their travel itinerary while traveling through the Midwest. In another article on page two by Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette, <clears throat> Clear Lake in good financial shape. The Clear Lake City Council heard or determined at its regular meeting Monday evening that the city's finances are looking good. Creighton Schmidt, Clear Lake Finance Director, reported to the council that for fiscal year 2022, total revenues were $17,862,226 while expenditures were $15,006,443, and transfers were $983,263. The report also included summary debt information, including the city's legal debt limit. The city's general obligation debt limit as of June 30 was $58,144,544, meaning that is the maximum amount of money for which the city may bond. Clear Lake has used just more than $4 million of that capacity. Schmidt also told the council that, as a general rule, the city's finances are healthy as long as it stays under 70 to 80% of that borrowing capacity. Single digits are good, Schmidt said. It puts us in a position to do bigger projects moving forward. <clears throat> Council member Gary Hughey said budgets have gotten more complicated during his time on the council. 
Having sat here for 15 years, there's more players, he said. I don't want to be chicken little, like the sky is falling, but I think that's about the most of the debt levels we've been in, we've been at in those 15 years. Schmidt reassured Hoogie, there's nothing to worry about at present. The only chicken little moment I could think of is we should have borrowed more money last year when it was cheaper, Schmidt joked. The financial report is required to be submitted to the state by December 1. Schmidt said it was filed on time. In other business, the council received the fiscal year 2022 annual city audit report from Bonsack and Fromalt LLP showing no major issues. The council also unanimously set February 6th as the public hearing date regarding the <clears throat> Lake Time Residential Subdivision Urban, Urban Revitalization Area located at 2605 South Shore Drive. The plan provides for an exemption from taxes on the first $75,000 $75, of assessed value added by improvements for five years. Using the current taxable valuation of $29.86 per $1,000 <clears> in assessed value, that would equate to about $1,200 per year. On page 3, there is an article by Lindsay Whitehurst of the Associated Press entitled FBI colon, Steep Climb in Teens Targeted by Online Sextortion. The FBI is sounding the, the alarm about an explosive increase in teenage boys being targeted online and extorted for money after being tricked into sending sexually explicit pictures. At least 3,000 children, mostly teenage boys, have been victims of the schemes that are connected to more than a dozen suicides this year, a scale that U.S. authorities have not seen before, justice officials said Monday. <clears throat> Many think they are chatting online with kids around their own age, but are quickly manipulated into sending explicit pictures and then blackmailed for money with threats to release the images, the FBI said. Most victims are between 14 and 17, but kids as young as 10 have been targeted. The FBI said it was issuing the National Public Safety Alert now, since kids may be spending more time online as schools close for the winter break. There's been a staggering tenfold increase in reports since last year, and there are likely more victims who never came forward, FBI officials said. Embarrassment and shame can prevent, prevent them from asking for help. Victims may feel like there is no way out. It is up to all of us to reassure them that they are not in trouble. There is hope, and they are not alone, said FBI Director Christopher Ray in a statement. Many of the current wave of schemes are believed to be originating with scammers based in West African countries like Nigeria and the Ivory Coast. The suspects typically pose as kids of similar age, often using a girl's profile picture, and even listing schools or adding friends to make it look like they live in the same area. 
It happens often on large platforms like Instagram or Facebook, but can also be on gaming or video chats, authorities said. The alert is meant to thrust the issue into the public spotlight <clears throat> so kids can feel more comfortable coming forward and adults can help them learn how to spot fake identities and reject anyone asking for explicit images, said Assistant Attorney General Kenneth Polite of the Justice Department's Criminal Division. The Department of Homeland Security is also working to track fake accounts back to their source, said Steve Francis, the acting executive director of Homeland Security Investigations. It isn't clear whether federal prosecutors had brought any cases tied to the scams. The tactics used by those behind the fake accounts are getting more aggressive, sometimes asking for photos within minutes. And cases have been rising around the world, advocates said. This is a growing crisis, and we've seen sextortion completely devastate children and families, said Michelle Delone, CEO of the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The best defense against this crime is to talk to your children about what to do if they are targeted online. In another article from the Associated Press, the title is Suspense Builds at U.S. Border, Future of Immigration Rules in Doubt After Recent Court Decision. From El Paso, Texas, suspense mounted at the U.S. border with Mexico on Tuesday about the future of restrictions on asylum seekers as the Supreme Court issued a temporary order to keep pandemic-era limits on migrants in place. Conservative-leaning states won a reprieve, though it could be brief, as they push to maintain a measure that allows officials to expel many but not all asylum seekers. <clears throat> In a last-ditch appeal to the Supreme Court, they argued that, an increase, that increased numbers of immigrants would take a toll on public services such as law enforcement and health care and warned of an unprecedented calamity at the southern border. Chief Justice John Roberts granted a stay pending further order, asking the Biden administration to respond by 5 p.m. Tuesday. Restrictions are slated to expire on Wednesday. The Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for enforcing border security, acknowledged Robert's order and said the agency would continue preparations to manage the border in a safe, orderly, and humane way when the Title 42 public health order lifts. Migrants have been denied rights to seek asylum under U.S. and international law 2.5 million times since March 2020 on grounds of preventing the spread of COVID-19 under a public health rule called Title 42. With the decision on what comes next to going down to the wire, pressure built on communities along both sides of the U.S.-Mexican border. In El Paso, Democratic Mayor Oscar Leeser warned that shelters across the border in Juarez are packed to capacity with an estimated 20,000 migrants who are prepared to cross into the U.S. Despite the court's stay, El Paso rushed to expand its ability to accommodate more migrants by converting large buildings into shelters as the Red Cross 
brought in 10,000 cots. The following items are found in a digest of news articles. The first is entitled, Lawmakers Unveil $1.7 Trillion Budget Bill. Congressional leaders unveiled a $1.7 trillion government spending package Tuesday that includes another large round of aid to Ukraine, a nearly 10% boost in defense spending, and roughly $40 billion to assist communities across the country recovering from natural disasters. The 4,155-page bill includes about $772.5 billion for non-defense discretionary programs and $858 billion in defense funding and would last through the end of the fiscal year in September. Lawmakers worked to stuff as many priorities as they could into the sprawling package, likely the last major bill of the current Congress. They raced to complete passage before a midnight Friday deadline or faced the prospect of a partial government shutdown going into the Christmas holiday. Another article entitled Wells Fargo to pay $3.7 billion in penalties. Consumer banking giant Wells Fargo agreed to pay $3.7 billion to settle charges that it harmed customers by charging illegal fees and interest on auto loans and mortgages, as well as incorrectly applying overdraft fees against savings and checking accounts. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau ordered Wells to repay $2 billion to customers and pay a $1.7 billion penalty on Tuesday. It's the largest fine ever leveled against a bank by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the largest against Wells, which spent years trying to rehabilitate its image after scandals tied to its sales practices. The violations impacted more than 16 million customers, CFPB said. Put simply, Wells Fargo is a corporate recidivist. That puts one out of three Americans at risk for potential harm. CFPB Director Rohit Chopra said in a call with reporters. In another article <clears throat> entitled Alliance, China says Chinese Russian naval drills that begin Wednesday aim to, quote, further deepen, close quote, cooperation between the two countries whose unofficial anti Western alliance has gained strength since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. The drills will be held through next Tuesday. In an article entitled Pollution, it's noted that in a little over four years, new heavy truck makers will have to cut harmful nitrogen oxide pollution more than 80% under new standards released Tuesday by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. The new standards will limit nitrogen oxide emissions to 35 milligrams per horsepower hour. The current standard is 200 milligrams, the EPA said. Under the title Nazi trial, a German court on Tuesday convicted Ermgard Furkner, 97, of being an accessory to more than 10,000 murders for her role as a secretary to the SS commander of the Nazis Stutthof 
concentration camp during World War II. On COVID-19, several local governments in China encouraged people with mild cases of COVID-19 to go to work this week, another sign of the difficulty the country faces as its rollback of virus containment measures sets off a wave of infections and a growing number of deaths. On Afghanistan, the Taliban banned female students from private and public universities in Afghanistan effective immediately and until further notice. A Taliban government spokesman said Tuesday, the latest edict cracking down on women's rights and freedoms. And as under earthquake, a magnitude 6.4 earthquake shook a rural stretch of Northern California at 2.34 a.m. on Tuesday, jolting residents awake and cutting off power to 70,000 people, officials said. Two injuries were reported. There is an article entitled Amazon to Make Major Changes. The retailer settles to end an EU antitrust investigation. Amazon will make major changes to its business practices to end competition probes in Europe by giving customers more visible choices when buying products and for Prime members more delivery options, European Union regulators said Tuesday. The EU's Executive Commission accepted the legally binding commitment from Amazon to resolve two antitrust investigations allowing the company to avoid a legal battle with the EU's top antitrust watchdog that could potentially have ended with fines worth up to 10% of annual worldwide revenue. The agreement marks another advance by EU authorities as they clamp down on the power of big tech companies and comes just a day after the European Commission accused Facebook parent company Meta of distorting competition in the classified ads business. The 27-member bloc hit Google with billions in fines, opened investigations into Apple, and is set to enact sweeping regulations by 2024 aimed at preventing so-called digital gatekeepers from dominating online markets. Today's decision sets the rules that Amazon will need to play by in the future instead of Amazon determining these rules for all players on its platform. Margaret Vestager, the EU's competition commissioner, said at a news briefing in Brussels, With these new rules, competing independent retailers, carriers, and European customers, well, they will have more opportunities and more choice. The agreement only applies to Amazon's business practices in Europe and will last for seven years, though some portions of the deal will end in five years. Amazon will have to make the changes by June. We are pleased that we have addressed the European Commission's concerns and resolved these matters, Amazon said in a prepared statement, adding that it still disagrees with some of the Commission's preliminary conclusions. Amazon offered concessions in July to resolve the two investigations. It improved those initial proposals after the Commission tested them out and received feedback from consumer groups, delivery companies, book publishers, and academics. 
The company promised to give products from rival sellers equal visibility in the buy box, a premium piece of website real estate that leads to higher sales. European customers will get a second buy box underneath the first one for the same product but with a different price or delivery offer. As Amazon cannot populate both buy boxes with its own retail offers, this will give more visibility to independent sellers, Vestager said. Regulators will monitor how the second box performs. John E. Lopatka, an antitrust scholar and law professor at Penn State University, said the terms of the deal represent a significant change for Amazon's business and could become a precedent for U.S. antitrust regulators. The countries that are included in the EU's association are a significant and growing market for Amazon, Lopatka said. It's hard for Amazon to say we can't do that here when they're already doing it in Europe. In another article from the Associated Press, entitled Congress Moves to Ban TikTok from U.S. Government Devices. TikTok would be banned from most U.S. government devices under a spending bill Congress unveiled early Tuesday, American lawmakers' latest push against the Chinese-owned social media app. The $1.7 trillion package includes requirements for the Biden administration to prohibit most uses of TikTok or any other app created by its owner, Byte Dance LTD. The requirements would apply to the executive branch, with exemptions for national security, law enforcement, and research purposes, and don't appear to cover Congress, where a handful of lawmakers maintain TikTok accounts. TikTok is consumed by two-thirds of American teens and has been the second most popular domain in the world. But there's long been bipartisan concern in Washington that Beijing would use legal and regulatory power to seize American user data or try to push pro-China narratives or misinformation. Brooke Oberwetter, a spokesman for TikTok, called the ban a political gesture that will do nothing to advance national security interests. TikTok is developing security and data privacy plans as part of an ongoing national security review by President Joe Biden's administration. These plans have been developed under the oversight of our country's top national security agencies, plans that we are that are well underway to further secure our platform in the United States, and we will continue to brief lawmakers on them, Oberwetter said in a statement. You are listening to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 21, 2022, on IRIS, the Iowa Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. From Mason City, Darlene Joyce Fredrickson, 83, of Mason City, Iowa, passed away on Monday, December 19, 2022, at the Hanson Family Hospital in Iowa Falls, Iowa. Graveside services will be held at 10 a.m. Thursday, December 22, at the Memorial Park Cemetery, Mason City, with Pastor Sid Bowles officiating. Online condolences may be left for the family at www.major.com. 
Majorix, <clears throat> M-A-J-O-R-E-R-I-C-K-S-O-N, funeralhome.com. <clears throat> that is www.majorericksonfuneralhome.com. Under Globe Death Notices, <clears throat> Carla Marie Bertelson, 73, of Mason City, died December 19, 2022, at Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center in Mason City, Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel. Stephen Steve Humphrey, 76, of Clear Lake, died Wednesday, December 14, 2022, at home. Arrangements, Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, Clear Lake. Ronald N. Schultz, 88, of Hansel, died Saturday, December 17, 2022, at the Sheffield Care Center. Arrangements, Council Woodley Funeral Home in Hampton. And finally, Mary A. Wood, 97, of Garner, <clears throat> died Monday, December 19, 22, December 19, 2022, at Concord Care Center in Granger. Arrangements, Cataldo Funeral Home. In sports news, there is an article entitled, Athlete Money Throws Wrinkle into Recruiting Landscape, from Steve Magargi of the Associated Press. Ohio State has produced the most first-round draft picks of any school and is about to make its fifth college football playoff appearance. Those facts would seem to provide quite the recruiting pitch to any college prospect. Yet athletic director Gene Smith still felt the need to issue a public call this month for fans to support one of three collectives assisting Ohio State athletes in name, image, and likeness compensation opportunities. Smith's statement underscored just how much the NIL era, still just 18 months old, has impacted the recruiting landscape. I think that it was never part of the conversation then, but it became part of the conversation, Ohio State coach Ryan Day said. It's trending toward being the conversation for a lot of folks. As time goes on, it's become more and more of a priority for folks. One year ago, there was still some uncertainty over how the new rule changes allowing athletes to profit off their celebrity would impact the recruiting landscape. Now there's no question what kind of difference it has made. Prospects aren't shy about discovering what kind of financial benefits they could earn at each school they consider. Programs are quick to trumpet how much their athletes already have made. I think last year no one really knew what it was going to be like, North Carolina State coach Dave Doran said. <clears throat> and now it's kind of like commonplace communication as far as the questions, so it's a lot different. The same schools are still getting most of the elite prospects. As of Monday afternoon, 13 schools in the top 15 schools when it comes to the best classes according to composite rankings of recruiting sites compiled by 24-7 Sports also ranked in the top 15 in 2021, the last class to sign before NILs arrived. But it would be naive to assume that means NIL hasn't changed things drastically. NIL has dominated just about every major recruiting story that has unfolded over the last year or so. 
There was an off-season war of words between Texas A&M coach Jimbo Fisher and Alabama's Nick Saban, who said the Aggies had essentially bought the nation's top-ranked recruiting class last year. At Ohio State, Smith's appeal for fans to support the collectives came six months after he gave a speech to Columbus business members in which he stated it would take $13 million to keep the Buckeyes roster together. Pay-for-play situations or improper inducements are still banned, but there is nothing stopping colleges from letting recruits know how athletes on campus are are already profiting through NIL deals. The NCAA says collectives should be treated as boosters, which means they should not be contacting recruits and influencing where they go to school. Boosters can be involved in NIL deals with athletes after they have enrolled. There are a handful of kids whose decisions are completely based on NIL, and so that's the only factor. But I wouldn't say many said Steve Wiltfong, director of football recruiting for 24-7 Sports. Obviously, it's an element for everybody now because people want to know what kind of value they can earn, whether that's seeing what college players are making on current rosters or even hearing what you're pitching me as a high school target. Los Alamitos, California high school coach Ray Fenton said his conversations with college staffs suggest programs are following one of three different philosophies in how they deal with NIL. What's happening is some kids are just going to the highest bidder, and some programs are playing that game, Fenton said. They're bidding the highest. The problem that they are running into is that a kid or a family will come in and say, hey, we're getting this much money from this school, and it's not true. They're just almost like at a swap meet, haggling on prices. He said other programs will not recruit an athlete because he's just looking for a payday. He's not looking to put in the grind that they want him to grind to get to the NFL level. Some programs are just going with a flat fee. You come here and this is what you get. Nobody gets more, nobody gets less, he said of the third approach. That's what they're building their program around, and they feel that if they get that kid in who doesn't care what he's making compared to everybody else, then that kid's less likely to go to the transfer portal. Fenton emphasized that these are just based on general discussions he's had with staffs about the NIL landscape and didn't have anything to do with his own players. Los Alamitos' long list of college prospects includes two top 35 recruits in quarterback Malachi Nelson and wide receiver Makai Lemon, who both committed to Southern California. The increasing number of people entering the transfer portal has given colleges another option for restocking their rosters. Southern California emergence this season and Michigan State's rise last year showed how teams can rebuild quickly by landing multiple high-profile transfers. That's not an option for all programs, of course. Texas State signed only a few high school prospects during the last two recruiting cycles, while instead building its roster almost entirely through the portal. The Bobcats fired coach Jake Spavittle after a second straight 4-8 and eight season. New coach G.J. Kinney said his introduc- in his introductory news conference that the foundation of our program is going to be Texas high school football players.
Other new coaches also have discussed the need to focus on high schools rather than relying on the portal to provide a quick fix. For instance, Wisconsin's Luke Fickle said he'd only pursue guys on the portal to fill gaps in his roster. Everybody would say, what about the transfer portal? Fickle said, that's not the way we want to continue to build our program. That's not the vision I have. I don't think that's the vision for what this place is and should be. You take high school kids, you develop them over a four or five year period, and you get amazing results. In another headline sports story, Labas listed as QB1 for Hawkeye's bowl game. Joe Labas is positioned to make his first start at quarterback, and he will be surrounded by a healthier collection of talent when Iowa plays in the trans-perfect Music City Bowl next week. The Hawkeye depth chart for the matchup against Kentucky in Nashville was unveiled Tuesday, including a handful of changes throughout the lineup, reflecting where Iowa is at as it works toward its 11 a.m. game on New Year's Eve. With senior Spencer Petrus injured and backup Alex Padilla in the transfer portal, Labas ascends to the top of the depth chart under center. Neither Labas, a six foot four, two hundred seven pound redshirt freshman, or Carson May, a six foot three inch true freshman, listed as the Hawkeyes' second team quarterback, has taken a snap at the college level. Labas will benefit from the return of Big Ten tight end of the year, Sam Laporta, and starting fullback Monty Potabom, who both missed Iowa's final regular season game against Nebraska with injuries. The eight-game starter, Arlen Bruce, in the transfer portal, Deontay Vines and Nico Rogani are listed as the Hawkeye starters at receiver, with Brody Brecht and Alec Wick listed as backups. The Hawkeye's offensive line will also undergo some changes. Gennings Dunker, a redshirt freshman, is listed as a first-time starter at right guard, and Nick DeYoung, a seven-game starter at guard, is listed as Iowa's starting right tackle. Bo Stevens and Jack Plum are listed as the backups. The other three starting spots on the front five Mason Richmond at left tackle, Connor Colby at left guard, and Logan Jones at center remain unchanged. Cornerback Cooper DeJean, injured during the first quarter of the game against Cornhuskers, is listed as the starting left cornerback in a secondary that will see Sebastian Castro shift into the strong safety spot that Kayvon Merriweather played throughout the season. Merriweather, who earned All-American honors, announced Saturday that he was opting out of the bowl game to begin preparations for the NFL draft. Castro will be making his eighth start of the season, although the other seven came at the hybrid cash position on defense. Running back commits, a versatile Texas running back who was once committed from Purdue, joined the Iowa football recruiting class on Tuesday. Terrell Washington, Jr. became the 22nd member of a 2023 Hawkeye recruiting class that will sign binding letters of intent beginning Wednesday, announcing his commitment to Iowa on social media.
the 5'10", 195-pound back from Wiley, Texas, reopened his recruitment earlier this year when coach Jeff Brome left the Boilermakers to become the head coach at Louisville. Iowa had previously recruited Washington and became involved with him again once he decommitted from Purdue. The son of former Illinois defensive end Terrell Washington, a starter on the Fighting Fighting in Line Eyes 2001 Big Ten Championship team, Washington and his family visited the Iowa campus on Sunday. Washington, who rushed for over 1,000 yards as a quarterback as a junior at Wiley East High School, demonstrated his abilities as a pass-catching running back this past season. He carried the ball 66 times for 618 yards and nine touchdowns and also caught 46 passes for 667 yards and 13 touchdowns during his senior season. Graduating from high school this month, Washington is expected to enroll at Iowa in January. Ranked as a three-star recruit on a five-star scale, by both Rivals.com and 24-7 Sports, Washington attracted 19 scholarship offers during the recruiting process. Duke, Houston, Utah, and Vanderbilt joined Iowa and Purdue, among among other offers from programs in Power Five conferences. Washington is one of two running backs who have committed to the Hawkeyes during the current recruiting cycle. Kamari Moulton of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is also expected to sign with Iowa during the early signing period, which begins Wednesday and runs through Friday. In college basketball news, ISU cancels men's and women's games. The Iowa State Athletics Department announced Tuesday morning that it has canceled a pair of basketball games scheduled for Wednesday and Thursday due to potential severe weather conditions. A winter storm watch for central Iowa, in effect from Wednesday evening through late Friday, forced the Cyclones administration to cancel the ISU men's Wednesday home game against Omaha and a Thursday women's basketball game against Drake. Neither game will be rescheduled. After consulting with both Omaha and Drake, We believe that canceling both games today will afford the student-athletes from all four teams the opportunity to depart ahead of the storm and return safely to their homes to spend the holidays with their families, Iowa State Director of Athletics Jamie Pollard said. Fans who had purchased single-game tickets for either game will be issued a refund by the ISU Athletics Ticket Office. With the cancellations, The Cyclone basketball teams will break for the holidays before opening their 18-game Big 12 slates on December 31. The Iowa State men will host number 12 Baylor at 1 p.m. on ESPNU, while the 14th-ranked Cyclone women's team will travel to Texas Tech for a 2 p.m. contest on ESPN+. In other college athletics news is an article entitled, UNI Receives $1 Million Donation for Unidome Renovations. A member of the powerhouse early 1990s Panther football team has pledged a seven-figure gift to renew the Unidome for the next generation. While at the University of Northern Iowa, Brad Baumler, a 1993 graduate, played an integral role in the Panther linebacker corps 
including the 1992 squad that finished with a 12-2 record. Graduating with a degree in industrial technology, Brad, along with his wife, Mary Lynn, have invested $1 million to show their support for Panther student-athletes. <clears throat> the Unidorm is symbolic of the university itself, said Baumler. When you think about UNI, you think about that dome. Our facilities at UNI need to be the best, he continued, and it starts out with a major campaign like this to help set the stage for the future. We need to get this project done and moving. It's time. Baumler added that his first memory of the Unidome is competing in the Iowa High School Athletics Association playoffs. As a kid, that's something you always look forward to, was making it to the Dome, he said. Words cannot express my gratitude and excitement for the gift from Brad and Mary Lynn, said UNI head football coach Mark Farley. This gift is a representation of what UNI football stands for. <clears throat> Brad epitomizes what drive, determination, and work ethic can achieve. As a linebacker for UNI, he represented every characteristic that we want UNI football to represent. He leads through his actions, and he believes in the dream of being the best. He built his company the same way he played linebacker, always tough, always honest, and always putting the team first. Baumler is president of the commercial and residential paving company, Concrete Technologies, Inc., based in the Des Moines area. He and Mary Lynn have generously supported Panther football, including the Van G. Miller Family Charitable Foundation meeting room, that kicked off the Unidome renovation campaign. In addition to the Baumler's gift, a premier space in the Unidome will be named in their family's honor. It's such a great, overwhelming feeling when it's just so loud in the dome, Mary Lynn said, and the players can look up in the stands and see all of their family and friends cheering them on. The Baumler's gift <coughs> supports a three-phased, $50 million renovation of the Unidome. Included in the first phase of renovations is replacing the Unidome's nearly 25-year-old fabric roof, reconstructing the west entrance and concourse, creating new and increased restrooms, and providing new and expanded suites. Phase 1 is estimated at $20 million, with over half of the goal already raised. ISU cancels men's and women's basketball games. The Iowa State Athletics Department announced Tuesday morning that it has canceled a pair of basketball games scheduled for Wednesday and Thursday due to potential severe weather conditions. A winter storm watch for central Iowa, in effect from Wednesday evening through late Friday, forced the Cyclones administration to cancel the ISU men's Wednesday home, foot home game against Omaha and a Thursday women's basketball game against Drake. Neither game will be rescheduled. After consulting with both Omaha and Drake, we believe that canceling both games today will afford the student-athletes from all four teams the opportunity to depart ahead of the storm and return safely to their homes to spend the holidays with their families, Iowa State Director of Athletics Jamie Pollard said. Fans who had purchased single-game tickets for either game will be issued a refund by the ISU Athletics Ticket Office. With the cancellations, the Cyclone basketball teams 
will break for the holidays before opening their 18-game Big 12 slates on December 31. <clears throat> the Iowa State men will host number 12 Baylor at 1 p.m. on ESPNU, while the 14th-ranked Cyclone women's team will travel to Texas Tech for a 2 p.m. contest on ESPN+. In high school sports, an article headlined Newman Boys Improved to 6.6-0. Mason City Newman improved to 6-0 with a 71-47 victory over Northwood Consett Monday night. Douglas Taylor had 28 points and 11 rebounds, while Noah Hamilton chipped in 22 points and 13 rebounds. Max Burt had 8 points, 7 rebounds, 8 assists, and 2 steals. Taylor, Toby, Toby Keston, and Hamilton all had three steals, while Hamilton blocked four shots. Three different Northwood Consett players reached double figures, led by Colby Eskildson's 13, Carter Anderson added 12, and Evan Lorenzen had 10. Cooper Yulseth had six steals, three assists, and two blocked shots. In other news, Crestwood is 77 over Forest City, 54. The Indians kept pace with the cadets for much of the first half before Crestwood pulled away in the second half. Carson Hall led Forest City with 13 points, while Carson Struckel added 12. Tommy Miller had 7 points and 7 assists for the Indians additionally. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for December 21, 2022. I'm your reader, Craig Shives. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening. <laughs>